Well, as we prepare for our time in the Word this morning, I encourage you to turn to Revelation 15. And before I get to reading the, the Scripture text, uh, see some guests this morning, folks that I've never met. Now, I would, I would hope that you'd give me the privilege of meeting uh, you following our service this morning. I would love to say hello. And uh, church family, make sure uh, you show uh, the customary hospitality that you always show. I encourage you to, to reach out to those you have not met. And maybe there's somebody who's been around a long time and, and you've never really had the conversation. Don't hesitate to say, hey, I just don't know your name. And that's okay to say that, okay? We'll all be gracious and forgiving about that. But it's just an opportunity to uh, welcome one another uh, as, uh, as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and, and welcome those who are, who are here for the first time and, and you are our guests. We're grateful you're here. Uh, we want to serve you uh, by bringing you the Word of God, by welcoming you and, uh, and showing hospitality. Well, uh, Revelation 15, let's look at our Bibles and uh, see what that has to say. Revelation 15, hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and, though, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass, with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is the word of God. Please join me in praying. We're going to ask for the Spirit's help in this time. Father, we, we know we need this word. We need you to help us understand it. So we're asking that you would open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts. Give us ready minds, willing hearts, attentive minds. We know that this word is living and active, and so it'll work on us as your spirit determines. So. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will work among us this morning. Um, I need you to control me, to direct my lips, and bring together the study that I've uh, encountered in the week past. I, we also need you to speak to us so that we hear more than the words of a mere man, but we hear from you, God. So we're asking all that to happen in this time, that we may see Christ and see him glorified. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, as is, has been typical uh, through Revelation, we here see another scene 
which is uh, quite fantastic. Um, as I was thinking about <laughs> this whole task of taking on Revelation, I thought it would be good to revisit why, why I'm doing this. Um, of course, this is part of the breathed out scriptures, and they are useful to us, as the Bible says, for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training us for every good work. It says that in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. But apart from that truth, the opening chapter of, of Revelation tells us, tells us that we are blessed to read, to hear, and to keep the words of this prophecy. That's in chapter 1, verse 3. So I want, I want this blessing. And in preaching it, I want you to have it too. Now, that said, I understand that some here are very committed to end times eschatological systems that may be different from mine. So what I want to do this morning is just make sure you know where I'm coming from. I want to kind of lay my cards on the table. I don't want to hide from you my uh, biblical assumptions. And they are, they are interpretive presuppositions that we all bring to the scriptures. And I just want to tell you where I'm coming from so you can see why I land where I, where I land, which may sound different. Because what I want to happen is, is if we can get past, if some of you feel, well, no, that's not what that means, but that we can agree that there, there's important applications for the people of God that we need to take away. So here are some, some presuppositions that I have based on my studies of the scripture. First one is that there is one people of God as it regards God's promises. There is no physical or spiritual distinction that would advantage one ethnic group over another in God's salvific plan. And I take that from Ephesians chapter 2. I also take it that national Israel in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing type in a physical sense of a spiritual reality of the new covenant people of God. I do not believe that there is continuity between the Israel of the Bible and the modern secular state of Israel. I take it that all of the promises in Scripture, without exception, are or will be fulfilled in Christ. It says that in Ephesians 3, 6 and 7. I also take it that the whole of Revelation is for the whole people of God. The truths were taken to heart. The, the warnings that we're meant to heed, the exhortations that we're to obey, these are not limited to some group of people that happen to be left behind. It's for the whole people of God. I take it, based on what Jesus said, that the, the time we live in, between the, the advent of Christ and his promised return, Jesus said this would be marked by tribulation. And Jesus said that tribulation would be would variously intensify and subside, and he described it being like birth pains with increasing frequency until he returns. Whether it's today or in two millennia, I believe the next thing to happen in God's redemptive plan is the return of Christ. When he returns, the Bible tells us the dead in Christ will rise and those that are alive and remain at that time will be transformed as they're caught up in the air to return to a renewed creation where we will live forever with him while the, at the same time the unrepentant will be cast into the lake of fire. Those are my presumptions as I've been studying it. And again, based on my study of the scriptures, so, so, so you know where I'm coming from. Now, between now and that glorious day of Christ's return, Christians must 
endure suffering of all kinds with the confidence that the plan is unfolding just as God has determined. There's no surprises in the unfolding of history. And in the end, Christ will be exalted. Evil will be absolutely vanquished. And those who belong to Christ will be glorified with him. These are glorious truths. And all of this is for the glory of God. As, as why is God doing all of this? It is ultimately all for his glory and the exaltation of his son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. So as we now look specifically at chapter 15, I want to focus this morning on three things. Three things that we see from the text. First, we see that there is wrath, God's wrath. Following that, we do see that there's vindication of God's people. God's people will be vindicated. And finally, we see grateful worship. And, and I would suggest that all of this, all of this is revealing of the glory of God. Well, let's first deal with wrath. Now, people who have, who have suffered greatly because of some egregious crimes, think, for example, maybe the murder of a loved one. We, we know that they, they so long for justice to be served. It, so there's that waiting period, right? That the family and friends wait for the investigation to be completed. The trial date is set. Sometimes it's a long time. And, and often those loved ones seeking justice have this sense of profound, being profoundly unsettled and dissatisfied because they feel in their heart that it needs to be publicly acknowledged that there has been great injury and that the person or persons who committed the crime must be shown as culpable. Justice needs to be seen. It's not done in secret. It's not done hidden. It needs to be seen and known. Now, when the Bible refers to God's wrath, we've got to understand that it isn't a knee-jerk, capricious act of vengeance. That's not what it is. God's wrath is his just response to settled rebellion. Looking God in the face and saying, I won't believe, I won't trust, I won't bow. His wrath is response to that. God's wrath is judicial. And his wrath towards sin reveals his holiness. And God's holiness is an aspect of God's eternal glory. When I say holiness, that he is set apart, he is other. He is so beyond and above and infinitely different than us. He is holy. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 in our Bible text, in verse chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So it's a great and amazing sign that John sees. Now, verse 1 here introduces this last of sevenfold descriptions of God's wrath. Here, they will be described, you can see in chapter 16, as bulls. These are plagues that will be unleashed on those who have taken the mark of the beast. So this is the mark of the Antichrist. It was described in the previous chapter, the number 666, the, the less than perfect, the, the ultimate imperfect. If, if seven is the number of perfection, completion, then six falls short, and triple six falls infinitely short. It's just so far opposite. So the mark of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, those who have the spirit, the, the, the Christ-denying spirit 
in them. And that is all. All who are not marked by the Holy Spirit. So there's no in-between group of marked people and marked people, people marked for the beast and people marked for God and some in-betweeners who haven't decided. Not siding, not being marked by the Holy Spirit is having the mark of the Antichrist, the unbelieving spirit. Now, I take it as well that the, these last of seven plagues, they're not chronological in history. This is how I understand it. But really, they're last in the order of how it's revealed to John. So previously, we were shown that seals, previous chapters, seals, trumpets, the last of those described the final judgment when all is complete. I'll just remind you what it says in Revelation 10, 7. In the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So the unfolding of all of history, at the end of the, the trumpets, at the end of the seals, at the end of the bowls, that is the end of all things. Now, we're going to get to the details of the bowls in 16, so we won't deal with those today. But this is ultimately, as I said, the judgment that will be meted out on metaphorical Babylon. So, so in previous chapters, we, we come to understand that the spirit of the age, the spirit of the Antichrist, invades and pervades human culture. Human culture is that is opposed to God. And we can see this in our own culture, too, where Christ is denied and his word is mocked. That is the spirit of the Antichrist that, that weaves its way through culture. So, so this judgment will be meted out on this metaphorical Babylon as we live in this metaphorical Babylon as sojourners waiting uh, for Christ to return. So again, as the bowls are introduced, they will ultimately culminate in, in the end time judgment. And with these, the wrath of God is finished, which is to say that they are the totality of the judgments of God on the unbelieving between the first advent and the return of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that John won't be shown more of what the judgment specifically looks like because we'll, he'll, he'll come back to that vision and, and, and get a different view. But this is just one depiction. Now, I said that God's wrath reveals his wrath towards sin, that that ultimately reveals his glory. And it's because of what John is shown in verses 5 through 8 that God's wrath is judicial. Again, not knee-jerk, not capricious. It is judicial. It is measured. It is appropriate. Verse 5. Look at verse 5 in your Bibles. John sees the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. Now, this is another occasion where, where John's vision draws upon Old Testament imagery. And there's so much of that through Revelation. So what's in view here is the tabernacle that Moses was commanded to construct. He was, made, he was told to construct that for the Israelites, and it was patterned after some heavenly tabernacle that he was shown. But that physical tabernacle that Moses built by the instruction of the Lord and design of the Lord, what that did was it symbolized that God dwelled with his people. Now, of course, it didn't contain him, but it was a symbol of the fact that God dwelled among his people. And that, that tabernacle be, became the place to to sacrifice for atoning for sin. It was there where the witness, the tablets of the law, were kept. And from the tabernacle and the priests that ministered there, the law of God was interpreted and applied, and judicial consequences were ultimately meted out. And you see this uh, in, in uh, the first five books, of, not, not Genesis, but Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you see those examples there. 
Now, when we come back to John's vision of this sanctuary, it has God's law, his testimony. It's the sanctuary of the tent of witness. And the seven angels sent out with linen garments and gold sashes, well, they look similar to John's vision or seeing a depiction of the Son of Man in chapter 1, verse 13. But I take it as well, and I think this is preferable to understand the meaning of these seven angels with the sashes and wearing linen. I I think we're meant to be drawn back to the image of the the priests in the temple. They're described in Leviticus Leviticus 16.4. So these angels, and maybe an analogy to the priests, they they were tasked now with meeting out God's judgment in the form of bowls that are given to them. And they're given to them by one of the four living creatures. We have to look back at chapter 4, verse 1, those living creatures that are around the throne in heaven. And that the angels, the seven angels emerge from the sanctuary, it depicts that they're acting upon the rebellious as a judicial consequence of denying the testimony of God contained within the law of God. And what we see in John's vision is there's this visible manifestation of God's glory just pouring out his wrath in the form of smoke, smoke. Now, as these angels are dispatched from the sanctuary, it was filled with smoke or a cloud from the glory of God, from the glory of God and from his power. And as a result of that, that glory presence, cloud, smoke filling up this heavenly tabernacle, this heavenly sanctuary, no one could enter the sanctuary until the plagues were finished. Now, again, With John's vision, we're we're drawn back to Old Testament imagery. There's an allusion here. Again, back to the tabernacle in the wilderness. When Moses built that tabernacle in the wilderness and, and it was dedicated, Exodus 40, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The connection here is that the law of God displays the glory of God. It's it's the explanation in, in practical terms of his glorious, righteous character. This happened again when King Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem. There, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So the glory related to the law, the glory related to the judicial meeting out of judgment as a result of denying God's law. Glory. It's glory. God's wrath displays his holiness, his hatred for sin, and his holiness reveals his eternal glory. Now, that God is wrathful towards sin, it shouldn't be something we shy away from or or are embarrassed about. Think of it this way. Without the just wrath of God towards sin, without that, the sacrifice of his son for our sin would seem unnecessary or even abusive. Without the wrath of God,
receive. Christ as our substitute would be wholly unnecessary. And some indeed have ignorantly leveled that charge against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement of the Son of God and calling it some kind of cosmic child abuse. But it's not. It is justice. God loves so, so very much those he determined to save by pouring out the full fury of his wrath upon his own son of the cross. But the fact that remains is this, that those who do not look to him in faith, those who have the spirit of the Antichrist, who deny that he is the son of God, the wrath poured out on his son is not for them. They have declared they want to bear it themselves. God's unfathomable holiness revealed in his revealed in his wrath that's matched by the bottomless well of love demonstrated in his mercy and grace and we know this don't we we know this and because we know this we should ponder this daily the gospel of christ is the good news of goth god's wrath for our sin averted taken away, propitiated by the Son of God who became sin for us so that in Him, in Christ, we might truly become the righteousness of God. And some of you recognize that from 2 Corinthians 5.21. That is glorious. God's wrath is for His glory. Second, second heading here is vindication. Vindication. It's something often said. You hear this when when, particularly by those who are advancing progressive ideologies. And they, they criticize those who maybe hold to a biblical morality. And the critique is this. You're on the wrong side of history. Well, you heard that, right? So you oppose same-sex union. You're on the wrong side of history. You oppose transgender and reassignment and all of that stuff. You oppose that. You're on the wrong side side of history. You believe the Bible is literally true. You're on the wrong side of history. And we've heard this before. And there's this presumption that in some time in the future that a majority of people looking back in this present age will agree. And, and in the same sense that we all agree that leeching is medically useless, that phrenology is a discredited psychological technique, and that Adolf Hitler was a monster. We agree, right? History is on the side of those who look back and say, and they assume that that their position as opposed to God will be vindicated by history. But what is history? Looking back, it's, or at least being vindicated by history, it's, it's simply a mere consensus of flawed people. And it might make you comfortable in that time, but it may be far from what is true. Maybe. Isn't always. And my point is this. As we live in metaphorical Babylon, as strangers, as sojourners, God's people will most certainly be on the wrong side of history, at least a history that neglects that there is a God who rules over all. Verse, uh, verse 2 in John's vision. He sees those who had conquered the beast and its image. They conquered the beast and its image and the number of his name, that's the 666, they're all standing beside a sea of glass mingled with fire. First, understand this. 
they conquered. They're, they're, they're being shown as having conquered. Because they didn't take the mark of the beast, they did not deny Christ. They suffered in Babylon because they didn't buy in. The beast that, that rose out of the sea in chapter 13, that image of Satan who deceived the world with idolatry and sexual immorality through the spirit of the Antichrist, and so we have this unholy trinity, Satan, the serpent, was conquered. He was conquered at the cross of Christ. And Jesus stomps on him every single time one of his own stand in faith, even to the point of death. It stomps on the head of the serpent, reminding him that he's lost. Now that symbol, back in chapter 13 of the sea, it was a, the sea is really a symbol of evil. But here in chapter 15, it's been tamed. It's been neutralized. It's glass now. It can't churn and rumble. It's glass. And what this should do is draw us back to Exodus. Again, another Old Testament illusion. Back in Exodus, when, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, the, the Lord caused the Israelites to triumph over Pharaoh by removing the existential threat of the sea, right? And they passed through on dry land. And as they were standing on the opposite shore, they watched as Pharaoh and his army were swept by the great deluge of returning waters and drowned. And symbolically, Pharaoh and all of his army were consumed by the very evil that they perpetrated against the people of God. There, God was glorified in subduing Pharaoh. He told him he would get glory over him. He warned him. God was glorified by subduing Pharaoh. And God is likewise glorified as the dragon and the beast and his antichrist spirit are conquered. And as a result, the people of God are standing there. They're not trembling. They have harps. <laughs> Years ago, when I first studied Revelation, I, I came up with a basic thesis statement for it because I've struggled with this book for many years. And here, here's all I could conclude, really. And it's a partially good one. But here's my, my conclusion that the thesis for Revelation is this. Jesus wins. <laughs> and his people share in his victory. That is clear. Jesus wins. And those who are his people, well, they, they share in his victory. Now, I would add to that, that, that and because that's true, be faithful and endure until Christ is revealed. Well, because justice matters to God, it matters to him that his enemies are acknowledged, not only that they have been on the wrong side of ultimate history, but they've been on the wrong side of God. It will be known. The vindication of God's people, we see, is a repeating theme through Revelation, from the souls under the altar when that fifth seal was opened, asking, they were asking, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're looking for that. Chapter 6, verse 10, to the two prophesying witnesses in chapter 11, verse 12, they were killed. They're representing the people of God. The prophesying witnesses were killed, the church. They're killed and left in the street and then raised up before the watching world. Again, vindicated to the horror of those watching. You see, God is glorified when his people are vindicated because, because they trusted wholly, 
completely, absolutely in the Lamb who was slain but was raised to life. When the Lord Jesus returns, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow, every tongue, that's everyone, without exception, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and this will be to the glory of God the Father. But this is also true along with Christ's exaltation as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will glorify his own. We will share in that glory. It's not our glory, it's his, but we will share in that. And if you belong to Christ today, know this. Know this. Every evil word spoken against you because you took a stand on the word of God, every inconvenience, every social exclusion, every mental or governmental or physical persecution, every evil act against the people of God provoked by Satan will be exposed for the futile, vapid, idolatrous, and condemnable deeds that they are. That will be exposed, and God's people will be vindicated. So, we're told to expect this. When you do suffer for righteousness sake you don't have to defend yourself rather as it says in first peter 13 rather rejoice insofar as you share christ's sufferings how that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed so we endure by looking forward to christ we endure by anticipating his promised return. Brothers and sisters, this light and momentary affliction, it is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond, beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. God will vindicate his own in Christ his son. Finally, last heading here is just simply worship, and it's grateful worship is what's happening in this vision. Now, in God's eternal nature, he is the only self-existent being. He is, he is, in his essence, he is worthy of worship, but I think we understand this. We encounter God from the point of ignorance of any of that. It is only when we are redeemed, bought back, rescued from the peril of our own making, that is to say, our own sin, it is only when that happens that we understand grace and mercy and then can see beyond to his justice and his glory and all of his perfections that are revealed in his word. But it's that beginning point of, of knowing, I once was lost and I'm, I'm now found. I was blind, but now I see. It's that understanding that, that he owes us nothing, but he gives us every good thing forever in his son. And supremely, it's that forgiveness that we have, the forgiveness of our sins and that, that, that open-armed welcome into his eternal family. And that, what that gratitude does is it opens our eyes to other glorious truths about God that transcend our experience. But God is eternally gracious. God is merciful. And when we praise him, when we truly worship him, what we're doing is we're, we're fulfilling part of that creation mandate as image bearers of God. A mirror is meant to reflect back. And as image bearers of God, we are meant to reflect something back to God. We reflect back to him in gratitude for the things that he has done for us. Putting on display, once again, 
his grace and mercy. Now back to John's vision here. That the ones who did not receive the mark of the beast, they did not. They're indeed marked by the Holy Spirit. They, they are standing on the shore of the sea of glass. They're holding harps. Again, they are the ones who are marked with the names of God on their foreheads. Symbolically, the, the 144,000 representing the, the whole redeemed people of God from 14, um, chapter 14, 1 through 5. An innumerable multitude redeemed bought back from slavery to sin, rescued from this metaphorical Babylon, and they're from every people group on the earth. That's back in chapter 7, verse 9. And in the same way, or in like manner, that the, that the Israelites were rescued in Exodus, rescued, redeemed by the Lord from Pharaoh's hand as they, they departed Egypt, and they sang the song of Moses. That's Exodus 15. John says these in his vision, sing that same song and the song of the Lamb. And this is the song they sing. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous, righteous acts have been revealed. Very simple point. And it's almost obvious. God is glorified in the worship of his people. God's people who recognize his amazing deeds. God's people who recognize his justice. God's people who recognize his righteous acts. All of these things are on display for all to see. I believe what this shows us, brothers and sisters in Christ, that worship will be our occupation forever. I think worship will be our occupation forever. And since that is true, it should be our occupation now. So how can we worship? Well, Jesus said, God seeks worshipers, so that's a given. He seeks worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And that means that, that our heart and head, right? It means mind and emotion. Our worship must declare what is true, but it must be truly heartfelt. Heartfelt? Not going through the motions. When you gather with God's people, this is an opportunity. We, we, we have the opportunity to express it when we are together like this. Of course, we say we're going to worship. That's obvious. But I understand that some are reluctant to join in, and, and I have to ask why. I understand people are self-conscious about singing. Or, but let me ask, are you not grateful for your salvation? Do not marvel. Marvel at what's been done for you. And think about it. In our sin, we stand condemned. And there's no reason in all creation, that I should get to be in the family of God. I've done nothing deserving. And that's true of you too. That, that fact alone should just cause us to absolutely marvel. What has been done for us? I think it was C.S. Lewis said this. I'm not sure. I quote it often. The amazing thing is not that God saves one person over another. 
The amazing thing is that God is that God saves anyone at all. We just look at our lives. What have we done of any worth? In and of ourselves, we're nothing. We should render to God what he seeks. Hebrews, it says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Continually. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now, obviously, we can't sing all day long. But as you go about your work, thank you, God, for the opportunity to work. Thank you for the strength you give me this morning. Thank you for the, the my heart's beating, my lungs are working. Let your suffering. Thank you for giving me peace that surpasses all understanding. Thank you. Thank you for joy in the midst of trials. We acknowledge his name by acknowledging that he rules over all. And that he directs our steps. We can worship anywhere. Not just when we're gathered like this. We can worship anywhere by, by laying down our lives in service. It's because of the mercy of God, it tells us in Romans 12, right? Because of what has been revealed in the gospel. We should do this. We should present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And we're told there it's holy and acceptable to God. It is a spiritual worship. Orienting our lives in light of what Christ has accomplished for us. In light of the fact that, that God's wrath has been fully satisfied in the Son of God for you. Knowing that at the end that the Lord Jesus in his own glory will, will be the vindication of all who have trusted in him. Living that way means not being conformed to this world, as it continues in Romans 12, 2. It's not being conformed to this present Babylon, but being transformed by the renewal of our mind. That The thing that transforms our mind is the very gospel message. And when we take that in and dwell on that, it changes us. So that as a result of that, change of mind. It gives us that discernment to know what the will of God is in any given moment. The things that to him are good, acceptable, and perfect. So brothers and sisters in Christ, this, that is worship, this is our occupation until Christ returns. And I would suggest to you it will be our occupation for all eternity, gloriously so. Just like the redeemed in John's vision, our harps, they're the songs of gratitude that we have been given. It's the song of God's amazing deeds. It's the song about the justice and truth of God's ways. It's the song about the glory of his name. It's the song about the knowledge that one day all nations will bow at his feet. And because of the eternal glory of God revealed here to John, we worship God and we worship him alone. God's wrath reveals his holiness. We have the assurance in Christ of our vindication on the day of his glorification before all creation. And so until that time, we make it our occupation with all of these truths that we've seen to worship him.
let's be that kind of people. Let's pray. Father, your works are glorious. Your mercy is unfathomable, and yet we, we know it. So thank you. Thank you for all that you've done for us. And Lord, I pray for anyone in the sound of my voice who has not yet looked to Christ in faith. Lord, that they will have a, a holy, righteous understanding of your wrath towards their sin. That they, in this moment, will throw themselves at the mercy of Jesus who died to save them. I pray by your Spirit, now bring new life. And for all of us who are the people of God today, who, who already know that mercy, who already know that grace, may our lives be marked by worship, being living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to you. We know we'll do that for all of eternity, but keep us faithful and cause us to endure until Christ returns. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.